can't do whatever it is you're doing here, you need to leave. I told you, no twerking during takeoff. Mm, that's a classic line. I can't believe there's a universe where I wouldn't know that my dad had a water buffalo name. Gary Hoffman. Yeah, my mom had a friend named... Shannon Farron. What a great name. I feel like this is my new favorite show. Gary and Shannon. You say that about every show. <laughs> this is fun. Hey! More stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Bo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Hopefully your Thursday morning has been wonderful like mine. Also, just want to let you know, Bill Handel, who just got off the air, he, he's available to take your call right now. If you'd like some marginal, I would say mediocre, or maybe even less than mediocre, legal advice for Handel on the law, give him a call at 877-520-1150. That's 877-520-1150. Five zero. If you would like some mediocre legal advice, Whoa, you can tell I just them spilled I said again. That. Look at that. Some big stories that we're following today. Four people are dead and two more are wounded after a man went on a stabbing spree in Garden Grove in Santa Ana yesterday. Corbin Carson will join us at the bottom of the hour with more on that. Of course, we're following all the latest developments from the mass shootings in El Paso and also Dayton. And President Trump, along those lines, considers tougher background checks for gun buyers after shootings, or at least as of this moment. We'll see what the future holds. We are going to be watching that story. But what is directly adjacent to the stories of mass shootings as far as how we as Americans are processing it on a day-to-day basis, I know that some of us are pretty unsure of what the future is going to hold. Some of us are very concerned about whether we should go out in big crowds whether we should go to open-air festivals, whether we should go to uh, an amusement park. And I think all of that is really fair. You might have seen the story of how there was a panic, or at least that's how the news described it, a panic where a motorcycle backfired and people started to run in Times Square. If you've ever been close to a traumatic event, you should be able to understand what people are feeling right now. When I say close, I didn't say experience or go through, just close to it. You could be emotionally close to it. You could be close in physical proximity. I'll just use myself as an example. I remember when I was in college, and this is a good 30 years ago. Some things stick with us for life. I was a freshman in college, staying in the dorms, Harbin Hall at Georgetown University, and we had a problem with an arsonist in our dorm. Someone was setting trash cans and other items on fire in the dormitory at night. So there were a string of days in which we were awakened at maybe 3 in the morning by firemen, smoke alarms, and smoke all throughout the dorms. And we were all literally running down the stairs in abject fear to get out of the dorm, to get to safety. The threat was real. The danger was real. And the memories of those moments don't go away. And to this day, so many years later, whenever I'm disturbed from my sleep, it's instantly a really, really hard situation to negotiate. That's the only way I can describe it. It's unsettling. It's scary even. I didn't uh, die in a fire, but I was close enough in proximity where whenever I'm disturbed from my sleep, It creates a panic within me. And many Americans around the country 
are experiencing that same level of panic. I remember, you should remember, shortly after 9-11. Many of us were in a panic. We were concerned about airplanes overhead. We were concerned whether it was going to be another leg in in the war on terrorists, at least as far as what al-Qaeda was doing. And it made it very difficult for all of us. This is something which all of us are going to have to deal with moving forward. And I say this as someone who teaches self-defense. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I would call some, myself someone who has studied martial arts for more than 30 years. And a lot of being safe has to do with acknowledging where you are and understanding your surroundings before you're actually in them. You know how you get on an airplane and they say, look to the front of you, look behind you, find where the exit is? Well, that's kind of what we need to do on a day-to-day basis. It's not thinking about, oh my gosh, what if there is a mass shooter around me? It's the assumption that I may be in a place of danger, and what will I do if this goes badly? If something were to happen, what can I control within my immediate environment to make sure that I have a chance to get to safety? Some of that is knowing where the exits are. Some of that is being aware of the clientele if you're in a bar or some other establishment. Some of that is just staying alert. And maybe we've never had to do that before. Maybe you personally, specifically, have never heard gunshots before or at least outside of a gun range. I know with me growing up and in most of my adult life, it was very common to hear gunfire in my neighborhoods. So with that in mind, hearing gunfire and always being aware of surroundings is something that's not new to me, but it might have to be new to you. It's something that we'll have to consider and be aware of on a constant basis. And if you didn't hear what I said on my show, the Mo Kelly show, let me just put it like this. There's basically no place in which we've not had, excuse a double negative, a mass shooting. We've had it in churches. We've had it in schools. That's elementary school, middle schools, high schools, colleges, universities. We've had it at outdoor malls. We've had it at indoor malls. We've had it at outdoor music festivals. We've had it at outdoor food festivals. We've had it virtually everywhere you can imagine. And I've probably forgotten 10 other places in which we've had them. Yoga studios. I think of it every time I do yoga. Synagogues. We've had them everywhere, so potentially they could happen anywhere. And I just tell, I'm just telling you what I do on a daily basis. I always think about whether I am available to protect myself. That's the only way I can describe it. Am I available to protect myself? From the shoes that I wear, there's some places where I don't wear glasses. I wear my contact lenses because I don't want my glasses to be knocked off. Sorry, I don't have the money for LASIK. But I have to think about that, not only for myself, but for family members, friends, whoever I may be around. I have to know that shots may ring out at any moment. And you have to also. And this is not about fear-mongering. This is about acknowledging the world in which we live. We live in the whole world of see something, say something. Well, I'm telling you, look for something, and then you can see something. Beware. Be wary. Be aware. Be mindful. And be safe. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. And so it goes. We found ourselves. 
Gary Shannon Show. I'm Will Kelly. AFI AM640. More stimulating talk. You know how some things just sort of pop up in your mind that just don't make sense? Well, I just had one of those moments. I'll tell you what I mean in just a second. But here's some of the big stories we're following today. Four people are dead and two more are wounded after a man went on a stabbing spree in Garden Grove in Santa Ana yesterday. Corman Carson is going to join us in the next segment so we can get some more information on that. And nearly 700 undocumented migrants were arrested in an ice raid at a food plant in Mississippi. And you might have seen a video by now. And this is one of those things where it just just popped in my head right now. It didn't make sense. And I'm talking about that ice raid. And I'm a person, I'm a law and order person. I always want you to follow the law. And that includes when you enter into this country. I understand some of the reasons which may impact a person's decision to illegally cross the border. But I'm still a law and order person. That said, I don't believe in selective enforcement of the law. If it's illegal to cross the border in that manner, and if it's illegal to hire undocumented immigrants, then I need someone to explain to me, using the law, of course, not your own political feelings, explain to me how a raid, which had been planned for more than a year, from what I read, Net 680 undocumented immigrants across five companies, seven facilities, and yet not one person, from that which I can read, from any company, employer, was either fined, detained, or arrested. And I say, yes, arrested, because if you know the criminal statute, Uh, regarding hiring undocumented immigrants or using false documents knowingly, it's against the law. It's pretty clear. Quote, under federal law, it is illegal for any employer to engage with illegal immigrants in the following manner. Hiring illegal immigrants, recruiting illegal immigrants, referring illegal immigrants for work and receiving a fee. This also includes hiring contractors who use illegal immigrants. There are criminal and civil penalties associated with this conduct. It is also illegal for employers to not verify work authorization. Three days after an employee is hired, employers should correctly complete an I-9. Failing to do so will subject to employers to both criminal and civil punishment. All right, so what are the penalties? Hiring illegal immigrants can lead to many severe penalties, such as criminal and civil fines, loss of business licenses. First offenders can be fined $250 to $2,000 per illegal employee. For a second offense, the fine is $2,000 to $5,000 per illegal employee. Three or more offenses can cost an employer Three to $10,000 per illegal employee. And get this, a pattern of knowingly employing illegal immigrants can mean extra fines and up to six months in jail for an employer. There are criminal penalties attached. So I just have this question. If you're going to arrest and detain 680 people, which ICE did, 
and that maneuver had been planned for a year, then I find it somewhat odd that as of this moment, there have been no fines levied, there have been no criminal penalties levied against any of the employers. Nobody connected to any of the businesses have been held responsible. They were just, put it another way, ICE knew exactly who these people were. They knew exactly where to find them. They knew exactly where they would be working. And ICE walked through the doors of the places in which these said individuals were working and arrested and detained them. And nobody else along the way was held responsible. I find that somewhat odd. I find that somewhat strange. I find that somewhat selective. We can't have a legitimate illegal immigration conversation or the laws surrounding it if we're not actually going to apply all of the law consistently. If we're only going to worry about the people who are crossing the border illegally and we're not actually going to do anything to the to the employers who are hiring them at wages most likely below the federal minimum wage. So the companies are like double ending it. Not only are they hiring them illegally, they're not even paying them consistent with what the law prescribes. And if we're not going to have a legitimate conversation about also how the employers impact this situation, then I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me about the law if you're not actually going to talk about the totality of the law. Don't talk to me about the issue if you're not really concerned with the totality of the issue. Don't tell me that illegal immigration is a scourge, is a problem, is something that must be addressed. And at the same time, on the same day in which 680 illegal immigrants are detained and arrested, you have not one individual from one company, either fined, either detained, or arrested. The law regarding employers is clear. You know what that's like? That's like saying, hey, we need to do something about terrorism, but you're not really concerned about domestic terrorism. Oops, who said that? You know what that's like? That's like saying we want to stop the war on drugs, but we're not really going to deal with any of the suppliers, just the street-level dealers. You know what that's like? That's like saying, you know, um, um, I'm pro-life, but I really don't care about universal health care. It doesn't make any sense to me. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. This is Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly here. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. Just want to let you know some of the big stories we're watching. Of course, we're watching what's been going on in El Paso and Dayton. Also, the president's response to it, whether he's going to continue to consider tougher background checks for gun buyers. We know the president may say thing something one day and may feel differently about it tomorrow. And also, this story right here. Four people are dead. Two more have been wounded. And a man went on a stabbing spree in Garden Grove. And Santa Ana yesterday, KFI's own Corbin Carson has been reporting on it. Corbin, it's good to talk to you. What do we know at this point? 
Man, over the course of just over two hours, a man went on a robbery and stabbing spree. Like you mentioned, that four people were killed. It all started about 4 p.m. yesterday at an apartment complex in Garden Grove. Cops got a call that two people had come home and found out that their house had been broken into. While that call was still pending for cops to respond to, cops got another call of a robbery at a bakery 20 minutes later. Cops are saying that the guy was in a silver Mercedes, or excuse me, cops were told that that guy was in a silver Mercedes. He robbed the place and took off with cash. Then the guy returns back to the apartment complex of the original robbery that happened at four. Cops say the man lives, does live in that complex, but that's when the first two people who were robbed apparently confronted the guy. Both were stabbed to death. One died there, one later at a hospital. After that, the guy goes into a cash and more business nearby. These are on Harbor and robbed that place. During this time, police are starting to realize that the same guy is doing all this. So cops get then get a robbery call at an insurance company. They say the guy, the suspect was armed with some type of machete knives that he attacks the woman inside that insurance company. She fights him off. She's like doing her best to fight him off, but she is stabbed multiple times in the process. However, she is expected to live. The, the, the guy then goes to a Chevron station and attacks a guy pumping gas. Cops say for no apparent reason, there was no robbery motive for this guy pumping gas. This is roughly an hour and a half after the first call. The guy slashes the guy's pumping gas's face and nearly uh, severs his nose off of his face and stabs him in the back. Then the guy goes to a nearby subway, robs that place, and stabs that guy, the subway guy, killing him. Undercover detectives are now, you know, scouring the neighborhood all over for this silver Mercedes. They find it in a 7-Eleven on Harbor within a minute of detectives showing up. They say the guy gets out. He comes out of the store. Now he's carrying a handgun that he apparently took away from the security guard inside in a large, light, uh, a, a large knife that, that we've been talking about. Cops say the guy was told to drop those weapons. He does, and he's arrested, but the security guard inside has been stabbed multiple times. We're told he was trying to confront the guy with the knife. He stabbed, the security guard is stabbed multiple times, and then at one point, the suspect cuts the security guard's gun off of his uh, belt, and, and that's when he runs outside and he is arrested. That uh, The security guard is the guy, the fourth, the fourth person killed. So a lot going on here, Mo. You gave us a lot of information, and let me try to extract some pieces from it. You told me of two people who did confront him, I guess, Mm -hmm. at the apartment complex who were originally robbed. Is that correct? Correct. Is there anything which ties those original two people to this guy that we know of? So far, we are being told that these are all random acts of violence that uh, other than the man living in the complex near the, the the first two that were robbed we are told that that is the only connection in and that being location so uh, other than the location being nearby their apartment there is uh, we so far we're being told none of the people that were stabbed or robbed either in the apartment complex the subway the 7-eleven the chevron the insurance company none of the or the bakery none of these people knew this guy we're told this was a an incident of a man who was pure, pure hate the words evil were used last night and that this guy was full of anger and that he just wanted to hurt as many people as he possibly could is there any indication that drugs were also in uh, in this equation as far as fueling the rage 
Now, I will tell you, no, we did ask that. No drugs were mentioned at this point. Um, uh, that that uh, We're hoping today at 1 p.m. we will get another update. I just found that out, and about a half hour ago, the Garden Grove police will be updating us again. Both Garden Grove and Santa Ana police are investigating these multiple crimes, eight different crime scenes. So we should be getting an update today at 1 p.m. We were also heard that there was a lot of comments about race. Um, police uh, uh, addressed this issue yesterday, probably in, in, in their words, in relation to the most recent shootings that we've been hearing about around the country and, and all this violence that's happening. Some of that have been considered race as a motive, but police say the guy is Hispanic, the guy that's been arrested, and so were all the people who were killed or and stabbed. So the the perpetrator and victims were all Hispanic? That's what we've been told so far, yes. Do we know at this point whether the, the suspect is speaking to detectives? Is he offering up any sort of explanation or is he tight-lipped? We don't know if he's been speaking. We do know that he was in the Garden Grove Police uh, Department last night being grilled, I, I assume, all night, like you see on the TV shows, with uh, any uh, searching for some type of motive. And again, we are hoping that that is, is, is released today at 1 p.m. But I got to tell you, Mo, this has been an unbelievable uh, a scene. I mean, the police were telling me, one officer told me, uh, the lieutenant there, uh, uh, Lieutenant Carl Whitney, uh, he was telling me he's been working in Garden Grove for 30 years. He's never seen something like this. A person goes off and kills four people in, in, in a span of maybe two and a half hours. You have all of these other random events that are going on. He said this is a once in a career type event that's going on. So many people are hurt. He also mentioned such help from the community that came in. The guy at the Chevron whose nose has come off. You have people coming forward to assist this guy who's bleeding all over the place and been stabbed in the back. As well as other people who are recording this with uh, surveillance, with their videos and their cell phones, anything that they can. I talked to a bunch of people who had, one guy had seen the guy during his spree and didn't even know it. He just saw a guy hiding in the bushes, he says, this father says. He says he was taking his, his kid to football practice, and he had no idea that this man was in the middle of a stabbing and robbery spree. And then when he found out, it was the same moment I was talking to him, and he's, he had this look of shock, and he tells me he was just scared. He's got his kid with him, and, he, and, and apparently this guy, is going on killing people at random. We've also heard of other people in, uh, that were near or customers in some of these businesses that are also feeling very lucky to be alive. They had no idea that they were so close to death. Now, i got to also tell you that other people were not so lucky. Just listen to Lieutenant Carl Whitney explain the two people that were stabbed but lived. We have two surviving victims. We have a female at the insurance business that bravely fought this suspect. She sustained numerous stab wounds, but she's going to survive. The alarm company called us, said there was an activation of a silent alarm. They have video feed into the business, and they told us that the female was on the ground bleeding. And then we had the male at the Chevron gas station who had his nose nearly severed off, and he also received a stab wound to his back. He's going to survive. And so again, we're hoping for some kind of answers, uh, more answers today as to what this guy was going through. What was the motive for hurting so many people in such a short amount of time? Corbin, did I hear you correctly? You said there might be an update around 1 p.m. today? That is correct. We are expecting an update from both uh, Garden Grove and Santa Ana police who are investigating this and eight, all eight scenes uh, they are investigating. And we're hoping that we get some more information and insight today at 1 p.m. I'll be there. All right, then we'll have the press conference. If it's televised, we'll take it live. You have it right here on KFI 
Corbin, thank you so much for what you do, and be safe out there. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. I want to let you know one more time, we have one more opportunity before the top of the hour to give a call in to Bill Handel. He's taking your calls right now for mediocre, moderate, marginal advice, law, legal advice. Give him a call at 877-520-1150. 877-520-1150. When we come back, I have a Monica Lewinsky update, and here's a preview. Let's just say she's leaning in to her history. I'll leave it at that. Tessa Barretta, why are you shaking your head at me? Not. Yes, you are. Hey, I am six forty. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Just in case you're not familiar with me, some of you may not have heard me before. I'm host of the Mo Kelly Show which airs Saturdays and Sundays here on KFI from 6 to 8 p.m. We talk about everything from politics to popular culture and everything in between, entertainment, media, whatever it may be. It's just really, really a fun get-together, and I encourage you to join me. But back to the Gary and Shannon show, some of the big stories in which we're following, we're definitely following what happened down in Mississippi where nearly 700 undocumented migrants were arrested in an ice raid at a food plant. President Trump says he's very strongly considering commuting the sentence of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. You probably heard Tessa Barrera commenting on that earlier in the program. He's serving a 14-year prison term on multiple federal corruption convictions. The president is sympathetic to his plight. And speaking of presidents and being sympathetic, I'll try to make this transition here. Monica Lewinsky, she's someone I've evolved on over the years as far as how I felt about her when I was younger I think I was much more harsh in my sentiments toward her I was much more unforgiving and maybe because I was 20 some odd uh, going to school in Washington DC prior to her and I thought about how great of an opportunity it would have been to intern at the White House it's one of those wife once in a lifetime opportunities. And she unfortunately used it and arguably abused it in a way in which rightfully so garnered all sorts of criticism. As I've gotten older, my feelings about her have softened to a, a certain degree because after a certain point, you have to move on. You have to let it go. If anyone is more pained about this, if anyone has suffered more than anyone else, including Bill Clinton, it's Monica Lewinsky. And I sit here saying, "Woo! if all of my mistakes and bad decisions that I made when I was 2021 were made available for the world to see, I would not be sitting in this job right now. I just know that, if, and I'm quite sure if you and all of your decisions, and of course, they may not have been as large as what Monica Lewinsky did in that moment, but I'm quite sure our judgment cumulative caught. The stakes weren't the same. I probably dated a lot of people I shouldn't have along the way. I probably went to a lot of places and did a lot of things I should not have done. But since it didn't also include the president of the United States, the stakes weren't the same. I say all that to say I'm a little bit softer on Monica Lewinsky now. 
And I think she has started to acknowledge, look, this is going to be part of my legacy. This is going to be on my obituary when I pass. No matter what, there's nothing I can do. But I still got to make a living. Here's what I mean. Monica Lewinsky has joined American Crime Story for their new series called Impeachment. And, of course, it's just in time for the 2020 election. The new season of American Crime Story begins production early next year and will premiere September 27th, 2020. Monica Lewinsky, we all know her history. We all know her um, mm, preference of cigars and, and blue dresses. She's going to serve as a producer. And executive producer Ryan Murphy previously said that he hadn't wanted to move forward with the season without her involvement. And if you know Monica Lewinsky's history, she's been really reticent to, I'll say, use that portion of her history to monetize it. Yes, she sold a book. I think she did something on HBO. She tried to sell some handbags. But for the most part, it's been tough sledding. Monica's probably 40-something now. I don't know if she'll ever get married. I don't know if any man would be wanting to deal with that type of baggage, no pun intended, with someone that you'd be involved with. She still, even to this day, in a large way, is a social pariah. She still is recognized, and I'm quite sure that will always follow her wherever she goes. Jamal. Jemima Khan and Henrietta Conrad, producers of the A&E docuseries, The Clinton Affair, will also produce this. Which means Monica Lewinsky is really leaning in to her history. At this point, she might as well just go ahead and sell cigars. Oh, that's wrong. That's unfair. Well, maybe she sold blue dresses. No, no. Maybe, maybe she sold cleaning agents for blue dresses. But when you just got to get that troublesome stain out. That would be a good way for her to make money. I could say something else would be really, really inappropriate. It had to do with knees. It had to do with padding. But I wouldn't want to put those two together. That would be very inappropriate. They'd probably have to dump me. Maybe I should just change the subject. Maybe I should just talk about something else. Blake is giving me the look like, okay, you're right at the line, dude. You're right at the line. Don't step over. Okay, let me just talk about something else, which has to do with pads and knees. Let's talk about the Chargers real quick. This Saturday... Don't miss your chance to compete in the Los Angeles Chargers EA Sports Madden NFL 20, a first-of-its-kind Madden rating combine. Test your skills on the field and get rated like the pros, you know, in the game. That's this Saturday at the Jack Hammett Sports Complex in Costa Mesa. Register for free. I said for free at Chargers.com. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Love you, Monica. Okay, like you, Monica. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. And here are some of the big stories we're following today and continuing to follow. More than 20 of the Democratic presidential candidates are hitting the Iowa State Fair this week. President Trump considers tougher background checks checks for gun buyers after the shootings in Dayton and also El Paso. And of course, we will have an upcoming news conference at 1 p.m. on the four people killed and the two people wounded after a man went on a stabbing spree in Garden Grove in Santa Ana yesterday. And there's this headline which somewhat shocked me. 
here in Orange County, longtime GOP stronghold, now has more registered Democrats than Republicans. And in political circles and in pundit circles, what used to be called Orange County, now they're mockingly saying it's Blue County. And someone I did a lot of TV with and I never had a chance to do any radio with, someone I respect is Sean Steele, Republican National Committeeman for California. He joins me now on the air. Sean, what is going on in California as you see it? Well, top of the demo. Well, exciting times in California. I got too many Republicans leaving the state because, well, you, you know, you got you, you got the homeless virus, uh, you know, taking over neighborhoods, suburban areas from San Francisco to Los Angeles, now in Orange County. But that's not the big issue. I mean, you know, obviously it's it's in front of us. It looks terrible. We see it's not really getting. It's getting much worse in Los Angeles. Got. Even Dr. Drew tells us it's concerned about bubonic plague, but we have typhus. You know, you have this kind of the third world diseases. But besides the standard of living and the quality of life, uh, our kids are growing up in homes that they can't afford to buy. And that's the greatest challenge in California. We haven't had that phenomena in 150 years, but we've been slating for about 20 years. We've been an out-migration state. That is, more people leave California than come to California. That's why we're losing yet another congressional seat. It's probably going to hit L.A. County with that. So what's happening is that much of our middle-class base, which is generally Republican, are fleeing like hell, going to states like Texas, North Carolina, Florida, making them more Republican. And at the same time, uh, it hurts my, my party registration. Uh, Orange County is now a battleland. The Democrats do have 89 more uh, Democrats than Republicans, 89, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but 89 more. And that's historic because it's a, it's a flip from the 1970s. Uh, we've gone through a whole period of, of some 40 years. It was once a strong Democrat area, believe it or not, in the 60s and the 70s. Then it became more Republican during the Reagan era. And uh, now the suburbs begin to change. We got density. We got housing that's on top of each other. The the white picket fence is disappearing in Orange County, and consequently, a lot of folks are leaving town in a hurry. Let me ask you this then: If everything that you said is true, and Republicans are leaving the state for any number of reasons, myriad of reasons, then is that saying then that the Republicans are just closing up shop in California? How do you reverse such a trend? Well, now that's. Great questions and big, big, big ideas behind that, too. There's still 5 million Republicans in California. There's more Republicans here than a lot of states have people. So so, so that's an important case. And at the same time, uh, most folks are concerned, uh, or most folks are not real political. But when they think about the quality of life, they have to think, well, how did we get here? What happened to our jobs, the good, good, good high-quality jobs? We used to have, you know, uh, literally millions of manufacturing jobs from aerospace to to, to automobiles, they're gone. We had 500,000 uh, people leave in, in L.A. County during the 90s when aerospace collapsed, the largest collection of uh, engineers, uh, aerospace engineers that the world has ever seen. That's all gone. And what happens is that it's been replaced by a lot lower quality jobs, except for the super elite in Silicon Valley. So instead of having millions of good blue-collar jobs, we have super jobs in Silicon Valley, about forty to 50,000 people. That's really what's supporting California and, 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 the state, uh, and the state budget. Those kind of numbers don't last very long at the first recession. Uh, and that, that concerns me a good deal. Still in Orange County, we have a huge expanding Asian population. 
and that is generally right of center, and they're the ones that the the party is counting on as as there's that's the growth opportunity. And in fact, most of our elected officers in in the Republican Party in, in Orange County are Asian Americans. We have Philip Chen, uh, we have Stephen Choi in Irvine, Tyler Deep in in uh, Little Saigon, uh, Ling Ling Chang, Andrew Doe's a supervisor, Michelle Park Steele. My lovely wife, who's a Korean American in Newport Beach. Yes, very nice. Uh, we 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 have uh, Lisa Barnett, who's Japanese American, and Dana Point. So a large number of our Republican leaders, the younger ones, happen to be Asian Americans. That's that's the great bet. And these are folks that are successful in in one generation, work hard, have have uh, have uh, put a high premium on education, strong families, uh, long term marriages. Uh, and so th- that's really th- the kind of the, the new middle class that Republicans are counting on. There's something else which is adjacent to this conversation, whereas the Republicans may not dominate in uh, registrations now, Democratic registrations have also declined thanks to the increase in the no party preference. What is the message that you are specifically making to young people, the future uh, people who may choose a party or no party at all? You know, that's that's the greatest comment I've heard yet from a, truly from a real a real journalist. I congratulate you on that. The greatest growth is the NPPs, and the Democrats have suffered with that as well. We have what's called mandatory voting when you go to the DMV. It used to be mandatory registration. It used to be you go to the DMV and you got a driver's license. No, now the clerk behind the uh, the counter who works for the union says, uh, "Which party do you want to join?" And, and a lot of folks are scratching their head. Well, what do you mean? What does that have to do with my driver's license? Well, the Democrats in Sacramento pass a law, and you got to. And so now you're registered whether you want it or not, basically. And uh, those that say, oh, I don't know, boom, they're automatically NPP. Now, these folks are uh, are an animal uh, uh, that most folks can't figure out right now. We don't know if they lean right or lean left, but they lean all over the place. They are voters. It's a good thing that, that they have an opportunity to vote. Both parties, if they're smart, are going to have to work real hard to find, in Orange County, they're 27% in other parts of the state. They're the, uh, they're the biggest party. And ultimately, we're going to see uh, nonpartisan voters uh, probably dominate, be larger than the Democrats and the Republicans. That's the big story. Sean, can I get you to hold over for one more sure. segment? I love this sure. conversation. And if people don't know, we have some very funny conversations off air, and I'm tickled to be able to have one of these on air with you. So if you could hang around for one more moment, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. More with Sean Steele in just a moment. Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly here. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Some of the big stories we're continuing to follow. That story in which four people are dead in Garden Grove in Santa Ana after the stabbing spree. We'll have the press conference and update from police at around 1 p.m. We'll carry that live for you. And joining me on the line right now is Sean Steele, who is the Republican National Committee man for the state of California. I was talking to you, Sean, about... Well, we know that MPP, their registration numbers have grown. Democrats have declined. Arguably, Republicans have not kept pace. But let's talk about recruitment. I know that you do a lot of work with the local universities, actually national uh, universities and young Republican clubs. What is the message that you are making to these young minds on our college campuses? 
Well, I think first you would talk about lifestyle and 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 what what your what your future is. And I think a lot of folks are worrying. You know, I'm taking a I'm taking a class on uh, something that has to do with some archaic major that has no value. And I think a lot more students are a lot more, and millennials are, are, are looking at their futures. How, how can I get a home? What kind of a job can I do to support it? Do I want an anthropological uh, a major of, of giraffes in the Arctic? Does that make any sense? Well, who's going to hire me for that? And I think the word's getting around, especially with student debt. You've got students that, that have gotten debt taking junk majors. Uh, and I think uh, robust lawsuits ought to be placed against universities for selling lousy, lousy classes, lousy professors, and, and lousy majors that make the kids feel good. They might have a lot of fun, and I think you should have fun in college. But rather than uh, you know taking a, a bad class that won't get them anywhere, I'd rather they be drinking in a bar. I mean, it's just you know at least they'll have more fun and they'll have something to show for it. So I think what the message is: if you want greater opportunity and greater freedom. And, and and you want to be running your own life without depending on your parents, you better get a real job or a real major that's something that's socially useful and then look around. And we're mobile. This society's really, really mobile. So I teach at Berkeley once a year. Uh, I asked poli-sci – well, it's a poli-sci class. They're not all poli-sci majors. I said, you know, how many folks plan to stay in California? Over half the hands are leaving. They're, they're not going to stay in California. These bright kids – and unless they're biochemical majors and and they have a, an offer from Google where they get two hundred thousand a year with an undergraduate degree, uh, they can't afford to to live in San Francisco. Uh, they can't afford to to live in a nice community along the beach because uh, the jobs just just won't pay for it. So they'll go to a place like Texas, uh, where where you know the the opportunities are better. There's much more uh, suburban areas, safer neighborhoods, better schools. So that's one of the messages is economic opportunity. What is your future portend? Uh, and, and so that's something that's terribly important. You know, California now is the number one state in poverty. We have the highest percentage of poor people in America, not Mississippi, not Alabama. It's California. We've got a lot of people living, families, multiple families living in, in single units. We've got a lot of people that, that just can't, can't afford uh, uh, you know the food and and can't afford uh, quality education for their kids, so they have to stick them in bad bad schools where they have no choice. They don't get school choice. They don't get charter schools uh, in, in many of their neighborhoods. So uh, so, so we so we're getting poorer, and yet at the same time, and I tell us the college students, you got a certain elite that that's kind of irrelevant. They got so much money they don't care. And uh, they don't deal with poor people, but they certainly like liberal attitudes, and they certainly like uh, liberal social ideas, and they want to be cool. They want, they, they, you know, they want to be able to uh, be in be in high society. So you have this serfdom. You have a new middle ages developing in California with huge economic disparity. There's no middle class. It's it's being pushed out badly. And uh, so those who want to stay and fight, well, it's a fight. It's a struggle. Yesterday. Uh, in a Korean uh, community center, uh, some 73 people signed up and registered to vote. I'm happy to say 65 were Republican, three were Democrats, and five were declined the state. Well, that that's in Orange County. That'll help get us back on top. So this battle back and forth in Orange County is going to keep going. We're motivated. The Democrats are motivated, but they got a lot more money than Republicans. They've got uh, government union money that... Uh, uh, the unions play the biggest and spend the most amount of money in California. They dwarf any private business. They dwarf oil. They they dwarf uh, real estate, and so it's it's a real struggle. So a students got to look at their economic future, 
if they got a good shot in California, go for it. But uh, on the other hand, uh, it's a big country. It's a free country, and they're, they're, they're free to uh, move. How about this? Let me offer a philosophical question. I know and you know generally people get more conservative as they get older. When you're younger, you're much more passionate. You think everything is world-ending in nature. What if conservatives took out the social issues in their message, and this would apply to young conservatives and older conservatives, cared less in terms of platform building, cared less about the immigration stuff, cared less about the social stuff, and just tried to drive home the financial, the economic message, which makes sense and resonates with most people across strata, across demographics. Is that something that you and other conservatives would consider? Well, there's been a there's a continuous debate on it. It's a good debate. It's a valid point. Uh, I I am a libertarian. I come from the libertarian side of the party. I'm a live and let live kind of person. I uh, don't care about your uh, personal proclivities. I believe that privacy is is a paramount importance. I believe that uh, having your own personal lifestyle, long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is, is key. Uh, I don't believe the government ought to be snooping and looking and uh, regulating and controlling you. So I'm very much of, of an individualist uh, supporter. And I think a lot of Republicans are, you know, kind of mind your own business crowd. And that's 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 what I like there. But it's a big party. So you've got, you know, you've got a religious element. Uh, you've got uh, socially conservative elements. Uh, then you've got, you know, wide-eyed libertarians and, and everything everything in between. Uh, you know, on one social issue about uh prison reform. Uh, liberals have talked about that for 50 years, and it was liberals, mostly Joe Biden, that, that was the big tiger. You know, lock them up if they had crack cocaine, lock them up if they had minor drug offenses, put them in federal penitentiary forever. Ironically, it's uh, Donald Trump that won uh, that, that, that more than any president, more than anybody else, more than Obama, that opened the door and has literally freed thousands of, of uh, adult black males who are, who are in jail for really relatively minor offenses. I counter that. I've got to jump in there. I can't let that fly because it was President Obama who changed the crime bill of 1994, which had a 100 to 1 crack to cocaine uh, differentiation, uh, lessened that to 18 to 1. That was very significant, specifically in the African-American community. I, I, now, I, it, it, now, it was significant, but it had virtually no impact on guys and, and particularly black males in jail. I mean, it, it took it took Trump uh, with, with Jared Kushner and others with a dramatic view of what's going on in federal prisons and, you know, what what disutility and how it destroys lives. And so it's become a, you know, it's really taken one of the great liberal agendas and it's taken it out the window for them. And. That's the kind of message I think millennials like to hear. We don't. We nobody wants to see a bad guy, no matter what their race is, and you know, get out of jail. That's a murderer, and that that hurts and, and, and maims people. But on the other, somebody for for drug offenses, even social conservatives get that now. Even evangelical Christians get that now. Somebody in for minor drug offenses, that's ridiculous to put him in jail for a long period of time. So I think that's been a turnaround. And look, that's part of 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 that of that new image. Now, immigration, let's not even go down that road. My wife's an immigrant. She feels very strongly about immigration, but you've got to do it right. A, we need more immigrants. B, we need a lot more smart immigrants. C, we've got 4 million people have waited in line, 
have done the paperwork, have taken the medical exams, have a working knowledge of English, have paid the fees, and now they're being stopped because of the illegal uh, comings uh, from, from 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 south of the border. I don't. I think Democrats are going to lose on that issue really big time. Hey, Sean, uh, I got to jump in there. I'm so sorry because I'm up no, against no. a break. We have to do this more often because I love what you have to say and I love the perspective that you offer. As a matter of fact, um, I'm going to be hosting tomorrow in for Gary and Shannon. Are you up to do this again tomorrow? I'd love to do it. You're a lot of fun, and you're fair and balanced. I know where you should be going. <laughs> Who knows what the future will hold? Thank you, Sean Steele. We'll talk Very soon. Very good. Thanks. This Bye-bye. Is the, this is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Now. Feels good to be running from the devil. Another breath, and I'm up another level. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. You can check me out Saturdays and Sundays as host of the Mo Kelly Show here on KFI. You can find out more about me at my personal website, MrMoKelly.com. That's M-R-M-O-K-E-L-L-Y.com. At Mr. Mo Kelly on Twitter and Instagram. Of course, you can find me at KFIAM640.com. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love visual media, TV movies and and obviously politics but more the analysis of all of them how they kind of coincect co uh, uh, coincide how they intersect and that often happens when it comes to award shows be it tv or emmys some uh tv emmys or the oscars some people think that the award shows their viewership has declined because there's too much politics in it or people are giving speeches and they're offering their critique of the president as opposed to lauding the film, which has just won an award. And if you know the history of the award shows, that has always been a part of it. But now, since our public discourse is so politically charged, we see the politics specifically in everything, and it impacts us differently. At least that's how I see it. The Oscars recently went without a host. And it was pretty well received overall. I don't think it had a great impact on the ratings, but the show specifically did not suffer because it did not have a host. And it seems now the Emmys are doing the same. And I know, I think Gary and Shannon may have touched upon this yesterday, but I have a completely different take on this. The Emmys not having a host, I get it in a business sense. If you don't have Um, a comedian or someone up there you don't have that 15 minute monologue at the top of the show you can use that 15 minutes elsewhere elsewhere you don't have those interludes where you go from one award to the comedian who has to i don't know tell some jokes for four or five minutes and then they go on to the next award it makes the show move much more seamlessly in nature that's from a logistical standpoint and if you are someone who works with the Emmys. I'm someone who used to work for the Grammys, so I understand some of the the behind-the-scenes of these award shows, the technical difficulties and, and the logistical obstacles which are inherent in many of them. This is something, if you're connected to the Emmys, I wish you would do. And I think you can do it because it's already done within the industry. If you don't have a host, and if you are struggling for viewership, the 2018 Emmys drew 10.2 million people, which is down, which was down 10.5% from 2017. In other words, it's trending down. If we know and agree 
that people in general do not want to sit through a three-hour show to see people that they already get to see all the time. Remember, we used to live in a world in which there was no TMZ. There was no social media. You didn't get to see these stars on vacation. You didn't get to see them when they were sunbathing. You didn't get to see them when they were coming and going from the airport. You didn't get to see them in every aspect of their personal lives. Now we do. A lot of the, I would say, the magic and the mystery that's gone now. So the whole idea of seeing all these people in the same room at an award show, not a big deal. And we don't want to sit through three hours of that where, you know, you can find most of the highlights on YouTube. This is what I think the Emmy should do. And if they ever do it, remember, I said it, I should get the credit. They should turn it into a social media experience. They should make it more amenable to people who don't look for a three-hour show who aren't interested in, I'll just say, a self-congratulatory award show. It's already been done by other platforms and facets within television. The NBA is a perfect example. Like, if you watch one of their games like TNT Online, you can watch the game without any commentary. You can watch it from any camera angle you want. It gives you the option to, let's say, watch it from the rafters, or you can watch it from... uh, Game side, right? Court side. You can watch it. They even have a camera where it's in the locker room and so forth. You can watch it from all different aspects. Allow the user at home to dictate their viewing experience. Maybe you have a camera backstage. Of course, you're going to have a camera on the red carpet. What if you had a camera right at the podium when they're giving away those golden statuettes? What if you had some way where you didn't you could just stay in the green room. That would be good. You could watch what was going on after people get their awards and they're going to get food and everything. Show us something that we've not seen before. Give the viewer a level of access they would never have otherwise. Do it like a lot of these other sports leagues are doing it, bringing the fan into the experience as opposed to making us watch on the other side of that fourth wall and we never get to break it. We never really, really get backstage. We never really get a feel for what it's like at the Emmys. Take us into that awards process, and I talk about all the great stories that I have from just working the Grammys, and I wonder what it would be like if other people could have experienced it firsthand with me. Take people backstage so they can see some of the, I guess, some of the the conversations that they wouldn't get to see just between the stars. Let them see some of the logistics in the truck as far as how they're moving around the seat fillers and, and what's going on in the truck from a production aspect. Like they do with Monday Night Football, for example. Turn it into a sports experience in that regard because sports have already figured out going to the game is not a big deal when it's better enjoyed at home and it's less expensive at home. And the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball have been about the business of improving the in-game experience to give you a reason to go. And if you and and they're actually doing these things where you can see the game as you're in the ballpark using your phone. So it's much more interactive in nature. In fact, when you go to the NFL games, they will show you your fantasy football scores on the screen so people can stay engaged in that way. Now, of course, it's not a direct correlation to Emmys and television, but if you can create a way in which people can care more about the show than just who wins 
Like, for example, if you did a poll before each category, category, who do you think is going to win? Who do you expect to win? Who do you think deserves to win before and after? That gives people a reason to engage both on social media and to watch the program itself. And this is not rocket science. I'm just saying if you're going to go the step of removing the whole idea of a host and you're going to do that long term and you have extra time and what we call real estate in which to do things, then do something which not only appeals to younger viewers, but do something for these viewers, TV viewers, who are not appointment TV viewers like you and I were when we were growing up, who don't watch live TV at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night to watch a specific show. They usually binge watch or they'll watch everything on Hulu whenever it's, it's convenient for them. Take that show and make it more sexy, if you will, for an iPad, for a smartphone, for someone who just wants to see something in a way that they, they share snaps and vines and Instagram videos. Make it digestible in that way, and you will have a hit. Or you could ignore me and just have your ratings continue to decline, whichever. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly, and for Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. By AM640, more stimulating talk is the Gary and Shannon show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Some of the big stories that we're watching, and I do mean big, I mean huge, tremendous, humongous. Barcelona confirms women can swim topless in city pools. We are definitely monitoring that story, and we'll bring everything we have on it. What? What, Tessa? I'm not monitoring that story. There, <laughs> I am. there are very specific people that have their eyes on that story. I am watching that story closely. <laughs> there should be some video somewhere. And I will say this. Barcelona is one of my favorite cities in the world. Been there a few times. And it is true. It's true. It doesn't matter if you're on the beach or a city pool. Let them fr- uh, fly free. Mm. <laughs> you got. You have to appreciate the shape of the human body, especially a woman. What else you got on there? Moving on. What else you got over that's there? That's the big story that that's, I'm watching. That's, oh, the, oh. that's what we're leading with? <laughs> Gosh. Well, the story kind of leads itself. Oh, I see. And we're also we're going to be talking about the 200 mayors, including the two uh, with respect to El Paso and Dayton, who are urging the Senate to return to the Capitol to act on gun safety legislation. We're going to be talking about that in the next hour. And we're going to talk about stupid people. You know what? Before we get to the stupid people, let's talk about the Pacific Wine and Food Classic because I know you've been waiting for me to do this. It's back and on August 17th and 18th at the Newport Dunes Resort in Newport Beach. There you can discover the best local chefs serving summer-inspired cuisine, fine wine, cold beer, and delicious craft cocktails. Tickets for this award-winning event are going to sell out and, of course, are very limited. But right now, as in right now, we're giving away a pair of tickets to caller number six at 800-520-1KFI. Caller number six, 800-520-1534. You and a guest will be going to the Pacific Wine and Food Classic, but the tickets are only good for Sunday. So keep that in mind. Make sure that you're available to attend on Sunday. If you don't win tickets, get yours at PacificWineAndFood.com. And it's brought to you by the Orange County Restaurant Association. And here's one more admonition. If you get out to the Pacific Wine and Food Classic at the Newport Dunes 
resort in Newport Beach and you feel like going in the water and you should happen upon an octopus, just leave the octopus alone. Don't try to pose with it. Don't try to put it all over your face and have it suck face on you. Don't do that because this might happen to you. Well, that woman was taking part in a fishing derby that was going on here in the Tacoma Narrows. These waters have a lot of octopus out there. And this one wasn't happy when it was made part of what was supposed to be a humorous picture. When Jamie Bichelia met up with some fishermen who'd hooked an octopus during a fishing derby August 2nd, she saw an opportunity for an unusual picture. It was a photo contest in, in the derby. And so crazy me, hindsight now, and looking back, I probably made a big mistake. Michelle put the small octopus on her face and posed. It grabbed her face with its suckers, then did something she didn't expect. It bit her on the face. It had barreled its, its beak into my chin and then let go a little bit and did it again. It was a really... Damn right intense pain i hope so when it went inside and uh it just bled uh dripping blood for a long time i had michelle just says the octopus was a smaller version of this giant pacific octopus that lives in the point defiance aquarium an aquarium spokeswoman says it could also be a pacific red octopus both have a powerful beak used to break and eat crabs clams and mussels and their bite contains a poisonous venom to immobilize their prey Michelle says that venom left her in incredible pain. Woo-hoo! But as owner of South Sound Salmon Sisters, she kept fishing for two more days before she finally went to the emergency room. And I'm still in pain. Um, I'm on three different antibiotics. Um, this can come and go, the Dumb swelling ass. for months, they say. And Michelle says the whole painful experience taught her a valuable lesson about handling a live octopus. Don't. This was not a good idea. Hindsight, looking back, um, I will never do it again. Jamie Bichelia says she got revenge of sorts on the octopus. She took it home, cooked it, and ate it, and she said it was delicious. Live in Tacoma, Kevin McCarty, Cairo 7 News. Revenge? Pose in a picture with the octopus, and it bit the crap out of you. Good on the octopus. And here's another thing. Why did they interview her? Why are they rewarding her stupidity? If you're dumb enough to try to take a selfie with an octopus and bite you and you don't realize, oh, my gosh, it has a beak, you are dumb on top of dumb. You don't need to be featured on the news. And then they featured her on the news, and and then she's going to take it home and eat it. Oh, it was delicious. Got revenge. That's not revenge. Make me mad. I I am intrigued by the fact that it also releases venom. I knew they had a beak, but I didn't know... They, I mean, she even got a poisonous bite. Oh. Yeah, I, I would like to talk to the octopus, actually. Well, he got I'm boiled. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's a shame. Well, I, I'm quite sure the octopus didn't think, hey, I don't want to pose for this picture. I, I don't want to be here. I have nothing to do with this. That was purely instinctual. I mean, that's you You threaten an animal. That's, you know, it's yeah, fair game. Yeah, the animal was not playing. It's like, wait a minute. Who is this? What? what is, is this a selfie? What is going on yeah. here? I'm not posing. I'm not smiling for this picture. But see, that's the problem. People say... Oh, an opportunity to get some likes. Let me uh, let me do this. This was one time I really was rooting for the octopus to come out on top. It didn't happen that way, but at least he got a few bites in and, and, and drew blood. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. We'll tell you what's happening when we come back. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFIM640, 
640. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. I got to tell you, that's a pretty talented guy right there. Bruno Mars, vastly underrated, if that's possible. For as much as he knows musically, he's a performer, dancer, singer, plays a lot of instruments. He does not get his due. Thanks, Blake, for playing that. Some of the big stories which we're following, despite what Tessa Barrera will tell you, we are following that story in Barcelona. Or at least I am. And like maybe, a hawk. And maybe Blake is, and maybe Nick is. We're following the story in Barcelona where it is now legal and I would say supported from where I sit. For Actually, women. it's not supported from where I sit. <laughs> it sounds like there's no support. Well, they just ruled on it. Women can now use the, the local pools and, you know, bathe topless. Hey. Cool. Guys, I'm following you guys following that, like, sternly. I'm sorry. Wait, but like I, I, I have to call you out on this one little thing. <laughs> you last played football where? Uh, that, you remember we were talking about things we may have done that we don't want to talk about? Got it. Say no more. <laughs> let's find out. Let's find out what's trending. Time for What's Happening. To be serious, of course, we continue to follow the events and the fallout and the debates going on in El Paso and Dayton. And here is something which is very important, which has just come out. You might have heard, but just in case you haven't, the suspected El Paso gunman's mother had called police before the rampage. The mother of the 21-year-old man accused of killing 22 people in El Paso, called police weeks before the shooting and was concerned that her son owned a quote-unquote AK-type weapon. The man's mother called police in Allen, Texas, over concerns about the firearm given his age, maturity level, and lack of experience. They say the mother was transferred to a public safety officer who said that based on her description, her son was an adult legally allowed to own the weapon. And that kind of highlights the whole debate. It's not just whether you suspect something, but what can you do? What can you say which could trigger some sort of rights violation? The weapon was purchased legally. He had not at that point said that he was threatening to shoot anyone. He had not given any indication specifically that he was about to do anything or put other lives in danger. So how do you go about addressing that potential threat, which is not or who has not availed him or herself as an actual threat? And we'll be talking about that, of course, here on KFI and, of course, around the country for the next few weeks, probably until the next mass shooting, which could be today, tomorrow, next week, next month. And and I always say this, and I have to say this. Laws aren't about preventing crime necessarily. Laws present a baseline for us to punish crime. It sets a level of standard for society. And sometimes laws help people get caught up in the net so they won't commit other crimes, like uh, illegal possession of a gun by a felon. That is a person who is either prone to violence or has already been convicted of a crime. We don't want that person to have that gun, use that gun for other crimes. And, and if, if it's only about whether a law will prevent a crime, then why do we have laws against rape? Rapes haven't stopped. Why do we have laws against, I don't know, murder, speeding, incest, 
underage drinking. Know that none of those behaviors have been prevented by laws. They are addressed by laws. Hopefully they are lessened by laws, but they're not prevented. Gives you a baseline for punishment. In other words, how seriously do we in society take those offenses? But I'll talk about that some other time. Also, what's happening? Mention the ice raids in Mississippi food plants. 680 undocumented immigrants were arrested yesterday. The operation took place at seven work sites, all agricultural processing plants in six different cities, and involved more than 600 agents. And this is what ICE Acting Director Matthew Albans had to say yesterday. Quote, the arrests today were the results of a year-long criminal investigation, and the arrests and warrants that were executed today are just another step in that investigation. And if you didn't hear me earlier, here's my question about this investigation, which was a year-long in nature. You took a year to set up this raid. And let me give you the stats again. Six different cities involved 600 agents, the largest single-state immigration enforcement in history, and not one person was sanctioned, not one person was fined, not one company was somehow penalized for the hiring of the undocumented immigrants, as if they just got their jobs all by themselves after crossing the border with no help, as if they filed the, uh, the company filed the I-9s and had no idea that the papers were either forged, they couldn't speak English, barely, but they had no idea. Either we're going to get serious about immigration reform or we're not. If you just want to punish the people who are crossing the border, then just say that. But don't say that we're a, a, a country of, of laws. Don't say we're about the rule of law. Don't say that we're about following the rule of law because that's just not true. If you're not actually going to hold the employers accountable. Oh, and did anyone watch the Beverly Hills 90210 reboot? Did, did anyone? Anyone? No. Blake, did you? Blake, you don't care because you weren't even born when it, when it came out. No, I'm being serious. Nick, you didn't watch it. Tessa didn't watch That was a show they filmed, if I'm not mistaken, some of the episodes at my high school or in and around my high school, Torrance High, South Torrance High, that kind of thing. But it's not a show I ever watched. Not one episode in totality. It's just like, oh, gosh, I see those guys at school every day. I, I see them. I, they weren't interesting to me in any way. Just no big deal. And to think that they're now trying to take me back to high school – no, that's okay. I'll pass. I'll pass. And and it's sad that Luke Perry wasn't there to be a part of that, you know, get together. But that's okay. Now, there is one. There is one piece of nostalgia that I'm all in for. They're doing a sequel to Coming to America. And I think it's going to fail. I've just got to be honest. Because I don't think they can re- recreate the magic of that movie. Coming to America, Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall. They're back. They're adding Wesley Snipes to it. And I've run into Arsenio maybe five, six times in life in various reasons and capacities. Every time I see him, if I have the opportunity, we will run lines of coming to America. And if you've seen the movie, both um, Arsenio and Eddie play multiple characters in that movie. And one of the favorite passages and lines is when Arsenio is playing this pastor preacher and he's giving marital advice 
to this woman who's going to eventually end up as Eddie Murphy's Prince Hakeem's wife. Listen to this. I want you and that young man to tie that knot. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to hold on to God's unchanging hand because he helped Joshua fight the battle of Jericho. Yes. He helped Daniel get out the lion's den. He helped Gilligan get off the island. Lord. I want to talk to you now. They will never, ever be able to duplicate that movie. They can't. The humor is just different. The time is different. The whole idea of coming to America doesn't really work anymore, especially, you know, talking about that immigration story. It's not going to have the same type of feel. Who said that? What, what do you mean by that, Mo? This is the Gary and Shannon Show. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. When you start, time. Mo Kelly here, Gary and Shannon Show. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Here are some of the big stories that we're following today. We're, of course, following all the latest developments from the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. If there is any update, we'll have it for you straight away. Also, we've been discussing the four people who are dead and two more who were wounded after a man went on a stabbing spree in Garden Grove in Santa Ana yesterday. We will be having a press conference, which will be airing live at around 1 p.m. So when it begins, I think... Garden Grove PD will be staging it. So when it begins, we'll bring it to you live here on KFI. And also, let me get to this because this speaks to what I opened the program with today. Anaheim Convention Center was evacuated today after a false report of an active shooter. I mentioned that because, and I'll tell you the, the specifics in just a second, but I opened the show today discussing how all of us, you know, we're a little bit jittery. All of us are concerned and we're maybe hypersensitive to sounds and things which are happening around us. And then we're more apt to respond in a way. It's a good thing because we're more alert. It's a bad thing in the sense that it can create an unnecessary panic. The Anaheim Convention Center was partially evacuated today after reports of an active shooter. Police responded to the situation and then reported there was no shooter and Everyone was safe. That's most important. Quote, not an active shooter and no shots fired. It was a fire alarm activation that prompted someone to yell active shooter, which created panic. Everything is returning to normal, police said via Twitter. Anaheim PD and Anaheim Fire had dozens of units on scene within minutes of the call at the Anaheim Convention Center. The call was not real, but it was handled as if it was until proven otherwise. And there may be some video which is floating around showing panicked people running. And here's the thing we have to always guard against. Even though we may be hypersensitive and, and rightfully so in many ways, we have to be careful that we don't create another tragedy just out of our desire and fear to get ourselves to safety. Quote, a false alarm from a smoke detector sounded in the Anaheim Convention Center this morning. Local authorities have determined the building is safe. We appreciate our attendees' patience. Our scientific program is continuing, and the hashtag 2019 AACC Clinical Lab Expo will be open until 1 p.m. That's what the AACC said on Twitter. And it makes us all rethink what we do in public. It makes us all 
be more concerned about being in enclosed spaces or even open spaces. And here's something else which I didn't get a chance to discuss, but I think is kind of tangentially related in many respects. Because of the mass shootings that we've had more recently and, of course, more distantly in the past, the L.A. County Fair has announced that it is upgrading security. I have two problems with that. One, why are you announcing it? Two, why are you doing it now? I mean, wasn't there already enough evidence and reason if you thought that your security was not up to par to go ahead and upgrade it? Quote, in light of the environment, we've made significant investment to, uh, to make sure our guests and employees are safe. This is Miguel Santana, chief executive of Fairplex, the private nonprofit that operates the fair from August 30th to September 20th. It's a 487-acre facility in Pomona. He continues, we always take security seriously, but we've made a deliberate effort to strengthen our security system, close quote. According to the L.A. Times, the Fairplex has spent 200000 to build a command center in the fairgrounds where police, fire officials, and other emergency staff can coordinate a response to an emergency. Extra video cameras have been added to monitor the, perim- the perimeter, as well as metal detectors and a badge scanning system to screen fair employees and contractors before they enter the grounds, close quote. I don't need to know that. And if you've ever been to a theme park, there's all sorts of security that is not advertised that you can't see. And I'm quite sure I'm not naive, even though you like to tell me I am on Twitter. I'm not naive. I know that there are aspects to the fair's upgraded security system, which is not being advertised. I get all that. I'm not even suggesting that. I just question the wisdom of making some sort of press statement or offering a press release saying, oh, by the way, we've upgraded our security. Oh, by the way, we're just now upgrading our security. I would have felt much better if they just released a statement, something along the lines of we're aware of the environment and we've taken all the necessary steps already. Please come to the fair. But instead, they have to tell us by uh, chapter and verse, line item on the balance sheet, how much they spent and where they put their money. That doesn't make me feel more confident. It makes me wonder, so if you didn't have all this prior to now, what was the impetus? Was it because of the, the Gilroy Garlic Festival last week? That was, was that it? Was that the tipping point? Was that when it hit critical mass? And before now, you're just fancy free and hoping for the best? Because you surely weren't planning for the worst. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. This is Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Just in case you're not familiar with me, I host the Mo Kelly Show Saturdays and Sundays here on KFI from 6 to 8 p.m. Talk about all stuff. We talk about Barcelona and how they've allowed women to, you know, bathe topless. It's an important issue. And despite what Tessa Barrera would have you believe, it's something that we are following here on the Gary and Shannon show, as I sit in for Gary and Shannon. If Gary and Shannon were here, 
they would be all over that story. They would make sure that it's at the top of the news and nothing less would do. Top and less. I deserve a rim shot for that. But I'm not going to get one because I see how y'all do me here. Just no respect at all. But some of the other big stories that we're watching, and I promise you we're all watching them. President Trump is still considering tougher background checks for gun buyers after shootings. There is word out that the GOP is more open to the idea of what they're calling red flag laws. We'll see where that leads. More than 20 of the Democratic presidential candidates are hitting the Iowa State Fair this week as they're in the race for the White House. And, of course, we're following all the latest developments from the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. But having said that, there's something else I think we'll probably be discussing. More than 200 mayors, including two of the cities impacted El Paso and Dayton, are urging the Senate to return to the Capitol to act on gun safety legislation amid criticism that Congress is failing to respond to these back-to-back shootings that have left 31 people dead so far. In a letter Thursday to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, the mayors wrote, and I quote, Our nation can no longer wait for our federal government to take the necessary actions to prevent people who should not have access to firearms from being able to purchase them. Close quote. Joining me right now is our ABC News correspondent, Andy Field, who joins us from Washington. Andy, I don't know if you heard some of that lead in, but these I, two, I didn't. I'm sorry. That's OK. The 200 mayors, including. Yes, that's uh, what we're talking about. Yeah. El Paso and Dayton have signed on urging the Senate to return to the Capitol. Is that going to happen? Unlikely. <laughs> We're not laughing at the I mean, subject. That's just, the short yeah. answer. We can get off right now. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, sadly, look, the NRA still has a lot of power despite all of its uh, issues and problems and financial woes here. Uh, the president's base and a large part of the Republican base doesn't want a single gun control there. They think this is a slippery slope that's going to take things away. Even the NRA, we're told, told the president that uh, his proposal for red flag laws to say if, if someone, for example, in high school has some some problems or threaten people or has some psychological issues, that that should be some kind of red flag in their uh, report so that when they do go try to buy a gun, they would be prevented from buying a gun. Well, the NRA and, and people who support gun rights or come back and say, well, you know, what about due process? Don't you get a chance to to counter all this thing? Isn't that going to stop people who really should have a gun from getting them? So any attempt to do these things, and you would think that at least a background check to find out if you have a criminal background or if there's anything uh, in your background that that might indicate that you would use a gun for evil purposes uh, should prevent you from getting a gun. You would think everyone would agree on that, but we have a number of conservative folks in the Senate, uh, including Mitch McConnell, who controls these kind of votes and literally is blocking that type of bill that the House already passed from getting through Uh, He says, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm old old enough to remember a time in which assault weapons had been banned uh, in regard to the 1994 assault weapons ban. I'm old enough to remember a time in which 
we did have the SCOTUS Heller decision, which said that not only a person can have a gun as um, referenced in the Second Amendment, but the government has the right to regulate as far as what type of gun, whether they can be background checks, the, the level as far as of how far the government can intervene. We've done this before. That's what I mean to say. We've been here before. We've been able to do something before. So is this purely a, a political standstill or is the will of America not there yet? Well, if you if you believe the polls, the will of America has been there for quite some time. The vast majorities of Americans want uh, stricter gun controls. Uh, 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 a majority of people want these so-called quote-unquote assault weapons. And I know people who are are for guns rights and, and gun owners uh, keep saying that we mislabel these things as assault weapons. Uh, and part of the uh, reason that perhaps the last quote-unquote assault weapon ban wasn't quite as effective as places like Australia and others is that there were so many exemptions and exceptions. And you can take some of these guns and alter them. You remember the bump stock yep. in uh, uh, in Las Vegas where it allowed you to fire more bullets faster? Look at Look at what happened in Dayton. They said that the shooter shot for 30 seconds. In 30 seconds, like, what was it, nine people killed and 20-some-odd injured? Right. In, not, in 30 seconds, he was able, with one weapon, to do that much damage. That's extraordinary. They, you know, for people who are, are saying that they want guns for hunting, for protection, so on and so forth, that sounds like a great idea. But do we really need a weapon of war that can kill that many people that fast? I mean, when when you're out shooting a deer, do you need something that's going to shoot 100 rounds to not only kill the deer and fillet it at the same time? Well, as in regard to the argument of a slippery slope, if anyone has done their congressional civic duty and learned how our Constitution works, the Second Amendment is not going anywhere. There's just no way that that's going to be overturned or even amended on any level. So the question is, what is the real fear by either the NRA, assuming that there is a real fear, or anyone else who feels that this is going to put us on a path to some sort of gun reclamation project? Well, you'd have to ask the NRA. I mean, this is um, uh, it, it, we, the the laws in this country uh, certainly favor gun owners. Uh, one of the one of the boogeyman of uh, the o- Obama years was that Obama was coming to confiscate your guns. When in fact, uh, gun sales went up during the Obama years, not down, and he was able to pass almost nothing that would restrict gun sales. So. In eight years of a Democratic president, and at least for part of that time, a Democratic Congress, nothing changed. So I'm not quite sure where this fear is coming from. The question that I always get is, uh, or I should say the sentiment I get is, if nothing happened after Newtown, in which kids were killed, and maybe because we as Americans didn't get to see the carnage, the actual pictures, if nothing happened after Newtown, nothing will ever happen regarding this issue do you get the sense that that sentiment still holds true? Well, let's take it a step further. Steve Scalise, who was the House Minority Whip, a Republican, was shot during a baseball practice here in Washington, D.C., and critically wounded. It's taken him several years to come back. He's still walking with a cane. He, him, he 
was shot, and he still doesn't think there needs to be any gun control. In fact, what he says is that we need more people with guns to protect against that, and he points out to the fact that there was a police officer, because he was a uh, high-ranking officer in the uh, in the House of Representatives, who was nearby with a gun that was able to shoot and, and kill this guy after he was shot. Well, not everyone's that fortunate to have someone who's an armed guard to, to come back and, and shoot at someone who's shooting at you. And then the other argument that the president has put forward, and many people uh, on, the, on the right in the Republican Party say, well, we just need to arm more people so that when a shooter's out there, they can go shoot back. We saw an example of that in El Paso, where this is a right to carry uh, concealed and open in Texas. There were likely many, many people who were armed and nearby at that time, and none of them were able to shoot at this guy. And it made it more difficult for law enforcement at the time, because if indeed there are a bunch of people with guns out, they don't know who to shoot at. Andy Field, ABC News correspondent. Andy, we'll be checking back in with you. Hopefully we'll have some movement on this issue by tomorrow. Thanks. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is going to be happening on the issue of domestic terrorism after these recent acts of mass violence. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Not only today, but tomorrow. Today. Congressman Benny G. Thompson, Democrat out of Mississippi, chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security, and Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican of Alabama, ranking member on the committee, sent a letter to Acting Homeland Security Secretary asking what the Department of Homeland Security is doing to address the domestic terrorism threat after these recent acts of mass violence. The letter also asked for the acting director to testify on the matter next month. Joining us to give us some perspective on the importance of this letter is Trevor Alt, ABC News correspondent. Trevor, thank you for coming on today. Happy to be here. Anytime. Should we look at this letter to the Department of Homeland Security as important or just public political posturing? Uh, I think that it is important for a few different reasons. The first of it is that it's coming from both a Democrat and a Republican. I think that anytime you can see this sort of bipartisan action, even if it is not, not necessarily a law, is a step towards some type of action. I also think it's important because they are talking about how to address real change with people who have the power to do so. So this is acting uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan, and, and he has testified previously. He said earlier uh, in the week that he acknowledged that the department needs to do more to address domestic terrorism, which is the result, uh, which is what we've been seeing in all of these different mass shootings, which many members of Congress and essentially Americans themselves are saying this is one of the most, if not the most, major problem facing America today. And they want to know how to do more to fight it. And they want to know why more isn't being done. But it also doesn't necessarily mean they are condemning the Department of Homeland Security. They wrote this letter in a, in a pretty kind language. They have said that uh, they're committed to ensuring the Department of Homeland Security has the necessary resources to do what they want to do, but they want to have a better understanding of what they're doing right now, and they want to know how they can help. But at the very least, it does appear to be a step where members of Congress on both political parties want something to change, because we've seen so many of these mass shootings come and go, where then America just continues business as usual. We should know that there's a, a 
uh, I would say, a designation to be made. There's the general domestic terrorism. There's the specific white nationalism. We know that uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray has made it clear that there is an emphasis on white nationalism as far as dealing with that aspect. But are mm-hmm. they to be dealt with the same way? Because there's some of these mass shootings in which we don't know the motive. We don't necessarily know the origination point. And there's some where we specifically know the motivation and intentions. In other words, does one size fit all in this domestic terrorism fight? Right. And I think that that's something that they're trying to get to the bottom of in having uh, Secretary McAleenan come and testify. Because these are two very different – just in the, you look at these two mass shootings that happened this past weekend. These are two very different cases, and the motivations are certainly very different as well. And you hear some pretty passionate arguments from either side on the political spectrum in what is the possible methods of handling it or preventing things like this in the future. But, yes, you are, you are 100 percent correct, and there has been a little bit of disagreement in how the government or this, the Trump administration has handled this domestic threat depending on which groups are there. For example, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden just yesterday accused President Trump of cutting some of the funding that the Obama administration had designated to fighting domestic terrorism, specifically involving white supremacist groups. And there's also been some accusations that a lot of the funding that has been designated for government watchdog groups to uh, keep track of domestic terrorism, the vast majority has been used to guard against uh, Muslim terrorists as opposed to white supremacist terrorists at when in the past several years, the majority of those domestic terrorism incidents have been committed by uh, white nationalists or white supremacists or or specifically uh, white terrorists. And so there is a large dis- uh, discussion that's happening right now of how do you treat these different types of groups? Can you treat it as a one-size-fits-all scenario? And what is being done right now? And if anything, what can be changed in the immediate future to try to prevent these massacres from happening? Before you came on the program, we were discussing, the I would say, the flip side of this issue as far as uh, gun control, and that is not a bipartisan issue. We have the Democrats very firmly on one side of the issue, and I would say Republicans, by and large, on the other side of the issue. We begin this discussion where you're saying that there, at least in this letter, is some bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Is it your sense that this bipartisan support, as far as addressing domestic terrorism, save what the president has had to say or not say, does this uh, bipartisan support extend to the other members of Congress? I think certainly so in terms of just addressing domestic terrorism. Yes, I would say that there is support in that regard. But in terms of how that funding is used, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure just yet. But I can say in terms of uh, gun reform, while we definitely don't see a bipartisan consensus, there are a few areas where we're seeing maybe a little bit of nudging towards movement. We're seeing some members of both parties that are looking at red flag gun laws. I know out in California, they, you guys already have some already where members of uh, members of uh, family members can report people that they think are dangerous and there can be temporary restrictions on that person purchasing weapons. There's discussion of bipartisan legislation that would maybe be at the federal level encouraging states to pass similar laws. And President Trump has said that he wants to get something done in terms of expanding background checks, which the vast majority of Americans, Republicans and Democrats, say they would like to get done as well. Does it mean that Congress is going to get something like that done? Not necessarily at all. In fact, we had, haven't 
seen a lot of the power playing Republicans who have stalled these types of bills. They haven't really moved on that issue just yet. But there is a huge amount of support on both sides in terms of expanding some type of background check reform for guns, as well as these red flag laws, too. So maybe we'll see some regard in a bipartisan way uh, in those areas. But it's going to matter whether or not this passion can be sustained until Congress comes back because they're off for the next several weeks. He's Trevor Alt, news correspondent for ABC News. Trevor, thank you for all you do. Thank you for your professionalism and insight. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Anytime. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. When we come back, hopefully at the top of the hour, we'll be able to bring to you the press conference, which is slated to start around 1 p.m. surrounding the four people who were murdered and two more who were wounded after a man went on that stabbing spree in Garden Grove in Santa Ana yesterday evening. And we'll have that for you just as soon as it begins. This is the Gary and Shannon Show, KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. We're going to break in for, we have the press conference for the machete stabbing spree beginning now. Took place between 4.09 p.m. and culminated with the arrest of the suspect at 6.27 p.m. So to give the order of operations, what's going to be happening right now, I'm going to do the introductions. I'll be emceeing this. I'll be introducing the people behind me who's going to come up and speak. So our chief of police is Tom Duray, D-A-R-E. Our city manager, Scott Stiles, will be speaking today. Uh, Mayor Steve Jones will be also speaking today. The members of our city council are all behind me right now in support. We have Chief Dave Valentin from Santa PD, V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N. From the Orange County District Attorney's Office, we have Paul Walters and Sean Nelson here to support us. So we'll go through the different speakers. Our chief will speak followed by our mayor, followed by our city manager. Then I'll come back and do a recap of where we're at with the investigation. What I plan on doing is releasing some video after the press conference to show one of the attacks at one of the businesses to show how violent this offender was. And then we'll open it up for some questions after that. So right now I want to introduce Tom, Chief Tom Duray from the Garden Grove Police Department. Good afternoon. First and foremost, I want to express our deepest condolences to the families of the victims of yesterday's traumatic event. Last night, the communities of Garden Grove and Santa Ana were preyed upon by violent individual who had no remorse or care for the safety of anyone other than himself. As the violent acts continued, the Garden Grove Police Department deployed all personnel to the area. We activated elements of our SWAT team that specialize in the apprehension of dangerous and violent suspects. Undercover detectives located the suspect's vehicle in front of the 7-Eleven, which was located at Harbor and First Street in the city of Santa Ana. As the SWAT team and undercover investigators began to converge in the parking lot, the suspect exited the 7-Eleven armed with a handgun and a large knife. As officers began to give commands, the suspect quickly dropped the weapons and surrendered to officers. It is my belief that the Garden Grove police officers' response and apprehension of this individual saved the lives of many other community members. I would like to commend the Garden Grove Police Department for their quick thinking, coordination, and teamwork that unfolded during this chaotic event. It was nothing less than outstanding. Had the suspect continued his rampage, 
he could have injured or killed many other innocent people. In addition, I would like to thank our local and federal law enforcement partners for their support and assistance during this tragic event. They were quick to offer any resources that were needed by our department. This suspect is identified as Zachary Castaneda, who has been identified as a documented gang member. This person should have been in prison and not allowed to be in our community committing these violent acts. Based upon his prior arrest record, he is a violent individual who should have never been considered for early release based upon Assembly Bill 109. As a police chief, I implore our policymakers to reevaluate their policies on criminal justice. The pendulum has swung so far that it is increasingly difficult to keep our community safe from the rise in violent crime. California law enforcement agencies have been crippled by Assembly Bill 109, and offenders are not being held accountable for their crimes. Our community becomes vulnerable when these criminals are released back into society and are able to commit further acts of violence. Again, our thoughts and prayers are with the families of the victims of this violent act. Right now, I'd like to introduce our mayor for Garden Grove, Steve Jones, to say a few words. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. As you can imagine, these last couple days have been very difficult for our city. There have been tireless efforts to bring this incident to a quick and safe conclusion, which thankfully has occurred. The loss of life is a tragedy in any community and on behalf of the entire Garden Grove City Council joined with me today, I would like to first express our deepest condolences to the families and loved ones of the innocent victims that were affected by these atrocious acts. These are the kind of incidents that you never want to see happen in your city, but the reality is they could happen anywhere, anytime. We have to be thankful in terms of how the danger to our community was minimized due to the outstanding work of the Garden Grove and Santa Ana Police Departments working together. Public safety professionals take an oath to protect and serve the community, and oftentimes that means putting their own lives on the line. So we thank them for their courage. Despite being one of the largest cities in Orange County, we have a very close-knit community that supports each other and deeply supports the efforts of our police department. Thank you again for coming out today, and thank you to the community of Garden Grove for their ongoing support. Thank you, Mayor, City Council. Now I'd like to introduce our City Manager, Scott Stiles, who would like to say a few words. Thank you, Lieutenant. I just want to reiterate the comments from the Chief and the Mayor that our greatest condolences go out to the victims and their families. These last few days have been very difficult for our community. It's been a struggle trying to understand the destruction and mayhem that has been caused. We have such a great community here. Crime in general is down in Garden Grove. That's due to the phenomenal partnerships between the community and our police department. Random acts of violence 
such as what we're responding to yesterday, do great damage to all the good work that's, that we're involved in. That's also why, as a city, we will continue to listen and, and engage with our community for the sake of public safety. Those priorities will always be of critical importance to us. I want to thank Chief DeRay, all the men and women of the Garden Grove Police Department, and our Garden Grove Fire and EMS personnel who responded so quickly to these random acts of violence. Special, special thanks to our undercover officers who spotted and apprehended the suspect in Santa Ana. Without a doubt, other people would have been at risk but for their actions. You think you can stand on your own during situations like this? But it should be noted that we have had many offers, offers of public safety assistance from our surrounding jurisdictions and agencies that have reached out to us. As the Chief indicated, those offers of mutual aid have been and are critical to this situation, and we thank them for that. Thank you, sir. Now, just to recap where we're at right now, I want to go over the timeline of what happened yesterday. Our first call to the police department happened at 4.09 p.m. in the afternoon. We received a call of a residential burglary that happened at 12612 Gentius in Garden Grove. This turned out to be our victims from our homicide that called to report the burglary. They arrived home, found their apartment had been broken into, but they had no suspect information. So the call went into a report holding queue until an officer could be dispatched to handle the report. As that call was holding, at 4.23 p.m., we received a call of an armed robbery in progress at a bakery located at 13040 Chapman Avenue in the city of Garden Grove. A male, later described as Mr. Castaneda, went into the business and he threatened the clerk with either a gun or a knife and took cash. The suspect fled that location and returned to his home at the apartment complex where the homicides took place on Ginches at 12612. We believe what happened was the two victims that had been victimized during the residential burglary confronted the suspect as he returned because they lived in adjacent apartments. An altercation occurred between our suspect and our two victims and our two victims were ultimately stabbed and succumbed to their injuries at the apartment complex. We received the call, arrived on scene, and found both victims down in front of the apartment, one on the balcony, one inside the apartment. One victim was transported to UCI Hospital, where he died from his injuries. After the homicide, we had the robbery happen, we had the homicide going on, we received a phone call back to our communication center at 5.39 p.m., about another armed robbery matching the same suspect description. This robbery occurred at the Cash and More business located at 12845 Chapman. Our suspect went into that business, threatened the clerk with a knife, and took cash and fled the scene. So now we have two robberies and we have the double homicide happening, and it's draining our resources here in Garden Grove. At 6.06 p.m., another armed robbery happened at Best One Insurance. This was a savage attack. I'm going to release this video later on where it shows the victim, a 54-year-old employee inside the business, was doing her daily operations of her business, sitting at her desk, feeling safe inside a business. Nobody expects to go to an insurance company to be attacked and, and almost killed at the time. 
Our suspect walks into the business, confronts the female victim, and without provocation, he stabs her multiple times. I'll release this video after this press conference today. After that stabbing happened, there was a check cashing business in the back of the same insurance company. That female victim threw cash at the suspect. He took the cash and fled the business. After that attempted murder and robbery, we received another phone call at 6.09 p.m. from a person reporting a stabbing that happened at the Chevron station, which is near Harbor and Banner in Garden Grove, just north of the 22 freeway. Our 44-year-old male Hispanic victim was pumping gas. Our suspect was also getting gas at the same location. Sometime during this altercation, our suspect produced two large machete knives, attacked our guy who was pumping gas into his truck, nearly severing his nose off and stabbing him in the back. Our suspect, at that time, after he attacked this guy savagely, returned to his vehicle, finished pumping gas, filled off his tank, and then he drove off southbound on Harbor Boulevard towards the city of Santa Ana. At this time, we're making radio announcements across the Orange County. We're asking for assistance from other agencies to be on the lookout for this suspect. Our undercover detectives who were here at the station suited up, put their vest on, and went out hunting for this individual. We had no indication where this guy was going to go, but our detectives were on spot and went looking for this suspect. A short time later, our detectives found our suspect vehicle at the 7-Eleven at Harbor and First Street in the city of Santa Ana. Within a minute of locating the vehicle, our suspect came out of the 7-Eleven store armed with a handgun and a large knife. Our detectives drew their weapons onto the suspect, ordered him to drop his weapons. He complied. He threw the gun down, threw the knife down, and he was taken into custody. At that same time, customers came out of the 7-Eleven store, said that the security guard inside had been stabbed and needed help. Our officers diverted into the store, started life-saving measures on this individual, started doing CPR, but unfortunately the security guard later died at the hospital. We learned that the security guard inside the business was followed by this suspect, was attacked from behind with a large knife, dropping the security guard to the floor. After he was stabbed numerous times, our suspect used his large knife and cut the weapon, guard, uh, the, the gun off the security guard's gun belt. That's the gun he walked out of the store with. If not for our undercover officers stopping this individual coming out armed with a handgun and knives, there would have been more lost life, loss of life in the city of Garden Grove or Santa Ana. After this, we learned that at the subway across the street from the 7-Eleven, we learned that there was another homicide where an innocent victim was attacked by the same suspect. So what we have right now, four needless homicides happened here in Garden Grove and Santa Ana. The flags behind me are at half staff. That's for the needless violence that's happening across the United States. This violence has to stop. And we're here in a collaborated effort together to try and stop this violence in Garden Grove. So our detectives, our officers, our city council, our lawmakers behind us are all together to stop this needless violence in Orange County. So we appreciate all the support from the community and we want to make sure this violence stops. What's going to happen from here on out, it's going to take another 48 to 72 hours for us to finish our investigation. We're collecting evidence at all the different crime scenes. There's eight different crime scenes. It's going to take time to process this evidence. Once we have our case put together, the Orange County District Attorney's Office is going to file charges on our suspect who's going to be arraigned tomorrow. At this point, we don't have any other victims. We have the four victims from the homicide, the robbery suspects, and we're still collecting evidence right now.
Again, the video from the attack at the location at the insurance business will be released later today. All right now, I'm going to open it up to any questions, and I'm here to answer questions. We interviewed the suspect. He continued to fight our detectives through the night several times. He had to be tamed, he had to be hobble restrained. He remained violent with us through the night. He never told us why he did this. We know at three locations he robbed people for cash. So we don't know if the, the motive behind this was purely for robbery, but there was no indication that this was a hate crime. We just know this was a random act of violence and the guy unleashed evil across our two counties, or our two cities. You're listening to KFI AM640. This is the Garden Grove Police Department update. Timeline right now, but I know he has a violent past. He has a gang associations, and we're working on his uh, criminal history right now. What she said was, we responded to the burglary call. That didn't happen. That call was still pending. We arrived on scene after we received the phone call for the two homicides. When we arrived on scene, we realized that the earlier burglary call was related to the homicide. So when it comes to these crimes, one after another after another, As things were happening, it was so dynamic, it was so rapid, with all these violent crimes happening across Garden Grove, we had to pull detectives who were also already working a homicide, they had to leave their desk, suit up, and head off to the field to assist our officers with all these different crime scenes. Carl, the suspect Michelle, I don't have that information right now. Uh, we're going to dive into his criminal history, and once we get a full picture of everything that happened, we'll look into that. And his Yes, thank you. David Valentine, Chief of Police, Santa Ana. Before I answer that question or any others, I also, on behalf of the City of Santa Ana, want to extend our condolences to the innocent victims involved here, all four of them. Um, not involved uh, directly in any criminal activity, just targeted by this uh, vicious um, suspect uh, in this case who's in custody. I want to also thank uh, the mayor, the city council, the police chief, everybody that's here with us jointly uh, supporting both of our communities um, and and we will work through this investigation jointly um, so that's important uh, another couple of pieces that weren't covered uh, this was a sole uh, individual attacker we don't have any information uh, to this point to indicate that he was part of a broader coordinated effort one suspect in custody committing all of these vicious uh, crime. So that's important. It's important to uh, note that and also to the community and everybody who's listening here that we're not looking for anyone else at this point. Um, in terms of uh, the question on point, uh, we are looking into the full background of, of the suspect uh, that we have in custody uh, under the custody of Garden Grove Police Department. Uh, he, the suspect does have a sibling who was uh, killed uh, in an incident in Santa Ana. Yes. This is the Santa Ana Police Chief. Now they're back to the Guard Grove Police Chief. 
Recently, we were out at the complex to deal with a suspect over a child custody issue he was having with his ex-wife. Uh, there was some type of where he took the child under because uh, the child was under monitoring, monitoring visits and he left with the child. So we went there to investigate that. As far as any other incidents involving the suspect, I don't have that right now. As far as your question about uh, the table being taken from our victim's residence, there was a table that was taken and there was evidence that was recovered in our suspect's apartment linking him to the burglary. Uh, we know that one of our victims had a uh, sword or a knife collection that was stolen. We don't know at this point if those swords or knives were actually used in these attacks today or yesterday. Corbin Carson remains on scene at that press conference and we'll have more later for us. If you're just tuning in, this is KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. We were listening to the Garden Grove and also Santa Anta, Santa Ana Police Department's giving a dual a joint press conference regarding the stabbing spree which transpired yesterday. Here's what we know so far. There was only one suspect. It wasn't a coordinated effort. They said there was only one individual involved. His name is Zachary Castaneda. He's 33 years old, a documented gang member, something which was very key in the opening remarks of Tom DeRay, who's the Garden Grove Police Department chief. And you're going to hear about this and much more discussion about it. He made it very clear that Castaneda had a prior arrest record. He was a known or documented gang member and specifically that AB 109 was connected to his early release. Castaneda is going to be arraigned tomorrow. And very quickly, if you don't remember AB 109, just read this. Existing law defines a felony as a crime which is punishable with death or by imprisonment in the state prison. Existing law also provides that except in cases where a different punishment is prescribed by law, every offense declared to be a felony or to be punishable by imprisonment in a state prison is punishable by an imprisonment in any of the state prisons for 16 months, two years, or three years. Every offense which is prescribed to be a felony punishable by imprisonment is any of the state prisons or by a fine, but without an alternate sentence to the county jail may be punishable by imprisonment in the county jail, not exceeding one year or by a fine or by both. Let me just skip to the end. In other words, there was a reclassification, realignment of violent offenders and through the AB 109, I don't want to call a loophole, but because of that provision, uh, the police chief obviously was making mention that this particular individual, Zachary Castaneda, was released early. We don't know specifically what his prior offenses were or what were the conditions surrounding his early release. As more of that information comes in, we will give that to you, and I'm sure there will be great conversation about why he was in prison, why he was released, how early of a release he was granted. But Garden Grove Police Chief Tom DeRay made that very clear and adamant that this was part of the reason why this individual was on the street and available to harm and kill people. Also, uh, Garden Grove Mayor Steve Jones uh, laid out basically the, the chronology of events uh, at 4.09 p.m., there was a burglary call. Occupants arrived home, found their home burglarized. 4.23 p.m., armed robbery call of a bakery in Garden Grove. Cash was taken. Returned home to the apartment complex where the original robbery occurred. This is the suspect. And it's thought that he was confronted by 
the original victims of the burglaries, which were reported at 4.09 p.m. and were stabbed to death. 5.39 p.m., it was an armed robbery call at the Cash and More business. There, the suspect threatened the clerk with um, a knife and took cash. 6.06 p.m., armed robbery at Best One Insurance. One of the employees there was attacked without provocation and stabbed multiple times. We're told that that Best One Insurance shares portion of that building with a check cashing business in the back, and that place was also robbed. At 6.09 p.m., there was a stabbing at a Chevron gas station just north of the 22 freeway. person was stabbed in the back and almost had his nose severed with machetes. And then shortly thereafter, not exactly sure of the exact time, the suspect was found by undercover um, officers at um, a 7-Eleven in the area and exited the the 7-Eleven with a handgun and a large knife, yet, for some reason, we're not exactly sure, surrendered to officers. The handgun that he had evidently was cut off the security guard who had been stabbed inside of the 7-Eleven, and that's the handgun that he was carrying when he exited the the 7-Eleven. As more information comes in, we will be giving that to you. I'm quite sure Corbin Carson will be on later in the day, most likely with the John and Ken show, to give you the latest up-to-date information. And if you're just tuning in, we just heard from not only the Garden Grove Police Department, but the Santa Ana Police Department, the Garden Grove Mayor, and they laid out the chronology of the events leading to the arrest of Zachary Castaneda, 33 years old, documented gang member, four people killed, two others injured, he had a prior arrest record, and the Garden Grove Police Chief, Tom DeRay, said specifically this is connected to AB 109, saying that this person should not have been on the street and was released early because of that. We'll have more on this in just a moment. This is the Gary and Shannon Show, KFI AM 640. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Just want to let you know we're going to continue to follow that stabbing spree. The information is still coming in. If you're just tuning in, we just covered the press conference in Garden Grove. It was a joint press conference between the Garden Grove and Santa Ana Police Departments. The mayor of Garden Grove and also the city manager were there. You heard Tessa Barrera talking about it. Just to give you the the basic information, KFI's own Corbin Carson is there reporting, and he will be reporting back to us. Just keep it here on KFI the rest of the day. We'll have the latest for you. But if you don't know, the suspect is Zachary Castaneda, 33 years old, documented gang member, from what I understand, a, a long rap sheet, as they say, prior arrest record. And the police chief, Tom DeRay, Garden Grove, Grove police chief, made it very clear, at least in his assessment, that Assembly Bill 109 was connected to his release and gave a, a, a scathing rebuke of it and how it may have directly impacted these events. Uh, the suspect will be arraigned tomorrow. Corbin Carson will have all this information and more, so just keep it right here. That's just one of the many big stories we're following. We're, of course, following the latest developments of the mass shootings in El Paso 
and Dayton just seems like just the news gets worse and worse, but we have to let you know the truth. And President Trump is still considering tougher background checks for gun buyers after the shootings. We will see what happens. But now we have some strange science. Strange science. It's like weird science, but strange. Okay. I've been pulling back in my meat eating. Wife's a vegan. I usually try to tell you that as a disclaimer. So there's not a lot of meat in the house, and I've never been adventurous with my meat eating, especially as I get older. I'm, I've tried a lot of stuff, and as I get older, I don't have any desire to try much more. And you know, with science, they're creating all these meat alternatives on one hand, and they're also creating the actual meat through tissue samples. They are now growing kangaroo meat. And when I say growing, they're growing it in a lab. And this is from the Wall Street Journal. In a school cafeteria kitchen in the Sydney suburbs, George Papau recently steamed a trio of dumplings with a unique filling, ginger, coriander, green onion, and lab-grown kangaroo meat. His startup called Val, V-O-W, took four weeks to produce a few grams of kangaroo in a lab after obtaining a tissue sample from a farm where wild kangaroos were culled. Other companies have cultivated beef, chicken, tuna, but it's Australia, so they're going to do kangaroo meat. His effort illustrates the broader potential of lab-grown meat. Yes, we won't run out of meat now. I could do without kangaroo meat. In fact, I understand that we have processed meat, but damn, that's a bridge too far. I, I, and I know the scientific applications where if they can grow meat, per se, from tissue, they may one day be able to grow human organs. I get the science. I just don't want to eat that level of science. That's all I'm saying. I've tried kangaroo meat. What was that? I've tried kangaroo meat. I'm sorry to hear that. I it was in Australia. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to be rude. It's uh, it was forgettable though. Like it felt like um, it didn't like, taste like chicken. Like overdone steak, maybe. Was it gamey, like it, venison? No, it was it was tougher. It was it was a tough tough meat to eat. Okay, yeah, I've uh, I was in Curacao, which is right off the coast of Venezuela, and th- down there they have iguanas everywhere. I mean. Everywhere They talk about how they were invading Florida. Well, no, it's much worse in, I would say, Aruba and Curacao. And they serve them as, in stew. They, you can have them anywhere. Like, you find a KFC, you can get iguana down in Curacao. A bucket of iguana. Yeah. And my wife, before she turned vegan, actually tried some. And I said, no, I'm good. I don't have the desire to taste things that run around and move. Like things with, like, tails, like, really long. Yeah. Reptiles. <laughs> And, and I've had turtle. You know, I've uh, had shark and all sorts of seafood and everything. But as I get older, I have no desire. Just back to basics, huh? Uh, yes. And it's, look, at least my hamburger doesn't look like it's going to move. I don't, I don't see cow when I'm looking at a hamburger. You think so much less of me now. I'm sorry. <laughs> just... I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I just keep disappointing you in every way. I, you know. It, 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 people don't know this. During the break, I'm usually standing up, getting my steps in. Because when you're doing a four-hour show, you have to keep your energy up. 
someone may tune in at 12 o'clock as opposed to 10 o'clock, and they don't need a tired Mo Kelly. Yes, I'm speaking in third person. They don't need a tired Mo Mo Kelly. They needed someone who's vibrant and giving all sorts of energy, and part of that is keeping my energy up. And I'm kind of marching during the news break, and I look over my shoulder, and Tessa is looking at me like I'm crazy. I am crazy, but I didn't understand why she was just so judgmental and disdainful no no not disdainful i said very weekend at bernie's like whenever the traffic sounder hits that very you know that the music yeah yeah we'll play it yeah it and he he, exactly he starts marching to this beat which good for him good for you getting Uh -uh. but as soon as it hits Uh -uh. he's up he's up and he stopped and he's stopped there you go it's like you control me with the music oh there it goes (laughs) i'm doing like the dance (laughs) Anyhow, yeah, you can't see me, but selfies could be used to check your blood pressure in the very near future. Selfies could have a vital health purpose beyond simply boosting your self-confidence or self-esteem or showing off your great workouts or your great body. In a new study, researchers at the University of Toronto figured out a way to accurately, and that's important, accurately measure blood pressure with your cell phone's camera by developing a technology known as transdermal optical imaging. Optical sensors on smartphones can capture red light uh, reflected from the hemoglobin under our skins, which permits TOI, transdermal optical imaging, to visualize and measure blood flow changes. By capitalizing on the translucent nature of facial skin, researchers were able to measure the blood pressure of 1,300 Canadian and Chinese adults by capturing two-minute videos of their faces on an iPhone. Well, that's not really a selfie, then. This is a misleading story. That's a two-minute video. That's not a selfie. Quote, from the video captured by the technology, you can see how the blood flows in different parts of the face, and through this ebb and flow of blood in the face, you can get a lot of information. This is Kang Lee, the lead author of the study and a professor in Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. Lee is also co-founder of Neurologics, a startup that released an app called Anura, A-N-U-R-A, sounds a little too close to aneurysm, which allows people to try out the transdermal optical imaging software for themselves, giving them the ability to record a 30-second video of their face and receive measurements for stress levels and resting heart rate. Lee said in a statement that more research is needed to make sure that the measurements are as accurate as possible, explaining, for example, that the study did not test people with very dark or very fair skin. That's racist. That's just so racist. It's not funny, Tess. It's racist. Throw it away. Throw that whole... Yeah, there you go. And in other science, and I am big into space exploration. It's kind of cool. The X-37B military space plane has hit 700 days in space. And if you may not remember that military space plane, it looks like a a miniature space shuttle with no windows and no little people in it. It's been orbiting the Earth for almost two years. It was launched on September 7th, 2017. And the reusable spacecraft does super secret missions for the United States. And they won't tell us. What it's up to, I don't know. I think it's monitoring aliens because I believe in aliens. And when we come back, I'm going to tell you about Bernie Sanders, who also believes in aliens and says that he's going to let the world know about the aliens if he's elected president. I'm not 
kidding. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM 640. You know KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Hope you enjoyed your time with me today. I'm going to be back tomorrow. Also, you can check me out on the Mo Kelly Show, Saturdays and Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. Check me out at my personal website, MrMoKelly.com, M-R-M-O-K-E-L-L-Y.com. Instagram, Twitter, at MrMoKelly. You can send me a longer message at Facebook.com forward slash the Mo Kelly Show. Let's enter into dialogue. And if you listen to the Mo Kelly show, you know, there's a reason why sometimes I'm like right before, you know, Saturday night, Sunday nights, you got Nori coming on later because I'm one of those guys who believes in UFOs. I believe in the mathematical certainty that we're not the only form of intelligent life in this universe. We've only had technology for the past, I don't know, 110 years or so. We're not as smart as we think we are. There probably have been other civilizations on other planets which have listed, uh, existed longer, more technologically advanced. And we go from Tessa Barrera to Deborah Mark with her condescending, judgmental eyes. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. No. no. I, was, I was looking at something else. I wasn't listening <laughs> to you. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't take it too personally. I'm on the fence about all that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Everyone comes to the realizations, you know, at different points in their evolution. Bernie Sanders is someone I'm not a big fan of. If you know me, you know that I'm just not a big fan of Bernie Sanders for a number of reasons. One, you're running for president once again. You're not really a Democrat, if only because you're just saying you're a Democrat so you can have access to the DNC voter rolls. You have access to the DNC debates. You have access to the DNC funding if you were to become the nominee, which he's not going to be. In other words, he's not a real Democrat. He doesn't espouse Democratic values as far as the party goes. I'm not talking about Democratic voters. I'm talking about the party. So he's basically using the DNC. He's fake in that regard. And also, he was supposed to come on the Mo Kelly show and canceled at the last second so he can kiss my ass. But that's just me. That's just me. But one thing we may agree upon is that Bernie Sanders pledges to let Americans like you and me know the truth. I already know the truth. You guys just have yet to catch up. But he's going to let everyone else know the truth on aliens, UFOs, if he is elected president. It's not going to happen, but nonetheless, that's what he says he's going to do. He sat down in an interview with Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan experience. I like Joe, but it just seemed like it'd be a strange place for Bernie Sanders to go if he's trying to court voters. But, you know, to each his own. He's not going to win anyway. But this is what he had to say with Joe Rogan. One last question. If you got into the office and you found out something about aliens, if you found out something about UFOs, would you let us know? Well, I'll tell you, my wife would demand that I let you know. Is your wife a UFO nut? <laughs> no, she's not a UFO nut. But says, Bernie, what is going on? Do you have any access to the records? Uh, you don't have any access? I don't. Honestly, no? I don't know. Okay. You, you let us know, though? All right. I'll be on the show. We'll announce it on the show. How's Please. That? that seemed like that was a very fruitful conversation and propelled the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. I think people take him more seriously now than ever before because he had an in-depth 26-second conversation about UFOs on the Joe Rogan experience. No disrespect to Joe. I like Joe. But it makes me wonder 
what Bernie Sanders is trying to achieve, what he's actually trying to do. If you didn't know this, and I'm being very serious, he has already filed, if need be, to, to run for senator once again because he's probably not going to win president. And did you know what he's registered as to run to keep his Senate seat? That's right, an independent. He simultaneously is running as a Democrat for president and as a backup option, an independent senator in Vermont. And if that's not weird, then I guess that the whole aliens as a part of commentary as you're running for president wouldn't be weird either. But that's just one of the many things that I have an issue with regarding Bernie Sanders. And also, if you're just tuning in, wanted to remind you probably later in the day, possibly during John and Ken, or probably during John and Ken, I don't want to speak for the show, but Corbin Carson will probably be back to address everyone on the latest regarding the four people who were murdered and two more who were injured after a man went on that stabbing spree in Garden Grove and Santa Ana. Yesterday, we carried the press conference live for you to hear, and we extracted a lot of information, and it's going to be hotly debated and contested as far as how this individual, Zachary Castaneda, 33 years old, a known and documented gang member with, from what I suspect was a pretty long um, rap sheet, if you will, how he was released, when he was released, under what circumstances, because the Garden Grove police chief, Tom DeRay, said it was specifically connected to AB 109, something which has been discussed at length on KFI, and people will probably want to know if that is true or the circumstances surrounding his release and also the specifics of his documented gang history. Corbin Carson, who was there covering the press conference, is probably on his way back now, and we'll have all that information for you and more. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. I'm going to be back tomorrow so we can do this all over again and have a good time. But coming up next right now, John and Ken, the John and Ken Show. So keep it right here. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk.